We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, something that both started before us and reaches beyond us. This summer, we look to the entire Bible to see God's mission in the world and how He calls His people to join Him in it. As we as a church look to beginning a new congregation, we turn towards the scriptures to see how God moves us out on mission. Join us this summer for a missional conversation. Hey, kids ages uh, three through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. And the rest of you, if you'd grab a Bible and open it, we're in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. I had this really great intro planned for this morning, uh, but then the reality of my week hit me, and I just felt like it might be better for all of us to kind of share that. Well, let me say this before we get started on that. If, if you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, we've got some on the back table. Those are yours. We want you to grab one. If you don't do it now, I understand it's really awkward getting up in the middle, uh, even, even though the kids are doing it, but uh, please don't leave here without one. Here's what I wanted to say, because maybe you can relate with me uh, in, in this place today. Um, this week, for whatever reason, through a... a, a bunch of circumstances coming together. Me and God, man, we, we were having it out. It was just angry. I was angry this week. Like all week. Most of the week. My wife can attest to that. Like most of the week. Just not happy. Angry at God. Angry at his plan. Angry at what he's done or hasn't done that I feel like he should be doing. Um, made preparing a sermon very difficult. Uh, but the important thing, and maybe, maybe this is weird for you because you're like, pastors aren't supposed to talk about being angry at God. Aren't we not supposed to get angry at God? Um, if you think that, I would just encourage you to read the Psalms, right? Because uh, the Psalms have a lot of anger in there directed towards God. But like any relationship, what I would tell you is the important thing is not so much the emotions you feel in a relationship so much as your distance, and so we take our anger to the, to the Lord. We take our, our hurt, we take our frustration, we take our joy, we take everything. We take it to the Lord and we, let, we work it out with Him. Uh, and you may, you may work it out with great volume. That's fine. He's big enough to handle your anger. He's big enough to handle mine. And so if you're anything like me this morning, you're, you're coming to this place with that, let me just encourage you, you need the same thing I do. We all need the same thing. We need the gospel of Jesus. So we're in Matthew 16 this morning. Um, we've been spending the summer looking at how the whole Bible speaks to our, our uh, being sent on mission in the world. Not by ourselves, but being sent along with Jesus on mission. Uh, because Jesus is on mission in the world. And so this morning, um, we are looking at what that means for us, both individually and corporately. So if you have your place in Matthew 16, that, our habit here is to stand. So if you stand in honor of God's word, we're going to be reading verses 13 through uh, 18 of Matthew 16. This is God's word for us. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time we just ask your blessing. Come and speak to us right where we are. Whether we're bringing great joy into this room or despair or anger or uh, boredom, we just need you to come and speak to us and to preach to us because uh, no one will benefit from healthy or, or, um, or helpful hints from Rick. We will only benefit if by your Spirit you preach your gospel to us. And so we ask that you would do that. And that you would meet us where we are and send us into this world to be with you, to be for our city, our neighborhoods, the world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So uh, some of you know this, some of you don't. Uh, I I became a Christian in college my freshman year through an organization that is now called Crew. Some of you knew me then. I'm sorry. Uh, That... The years have been kinder, I think, to me than, than most in terms of softening me. I was not a happy person. Anyway, um, as part of crew, we were all about mission. We were all about sharing the gospel. It was, it was, that was what I got trained on. That was what I got excited about. But also, I really got discouraged a lot because never, things never seemed to work out like I thought they would. Like, um, I... I don't know how, how many of you maybe were part, of, were part of that group or maybe you were part of another group or you witnessed people doing this on campus. But when people are studying or throwing Frisbee out on the quad, they probably aren't there hoping that you're going to talk to them about Jesus. And yet we did it all the time. And, and, we got, and so what that meant was I got, specifically me, and it may just been me, I got rejected a lot. Right? Rejected a lot. I think a lot of us avoid helping people encounter Jesus because we're afraid of that. And you don't ever get over that, by the way. No matter how many times you get rejected by people, no matter how much education you get, you never, uh, you never get over that fear of rejection. Because all of us know how bad we are at helping other people encounter Jesus. We know that we're just not very good at it. And then we believe it's up to us. And so if we're bad at it, and it's up to us to help other people encounter Jesus, then I'm not going to do it because I don't want to mess it up, and then we're going to burn bridges, and they'll never encounter Jesus. But let me ask you a question. What if it's not? What if it's not up to you? What if that's not it at all? What if the church advances through different means than your efforts, than my efforts, than our abilities? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning and so there's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful for you, as always, or as regularly. We will be looking at it in three ways. We're going to be looking at the question of identity, okay, because that's a question that's raised. We're going to look at the question of purpose, and then we're going to look at answering our questions, okay? Question of identity, question of purpose, and then answering questions. And what we're going to find is this. The church advances through the victory of her king. That's how the church advances. The church advances through the victory of of her king. So let's begin with the question of identity, right? So we're right smack in the middle of Matthew's gospel. If you're here this morning, you're not familiar with the Bible, that's cool. Uh, the, the gospels, when we say Matthew's gospel, uh, the gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. 
And what they are is they are narrative accounts of the, of the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? First four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, they are either eyewitness accounts in the, in the case of Matthew and John, or they are uh, reported from eyewitness accounts like Mark, who tradition holds got most of his stuff from Peter, and Luke, who says right at the beginning, like, I investigated this, I got with the eyewitnesses, I'm, I'm writing for you as historical account as I can, right? And so they are eyewitness accounts. They come in different perspectives, as all history does, right? We, we all have, we, we can't be omnipresent uh, when it comes to history, we, we, and when writing history, you have to select events and place them in order to accomplish something. That's what they do. But they all have the same conclusion, that Jesus is God's answer to our greatest problem. That he's the answer to our broken relationship with God. And so right after this passage that we read this morning in Matthew's Gospel, the, attention, the focus shifts. Jesus, up to this point, has been doing some crazy stuff. He's been healing people. He fed like 5,000 plus people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Which I know a lot of people, especially if you took a college Bible class, they want to make you think that the real miracle in that was that Jesus got people to share. I'm sorry. No. Like, ancient people weren't fools. Right? What was miraculous to them, why they even wrote about it, was not because Jesus got them to share all the food they already brought with them. It's that they didn't bring any food with them. And and miraculously, he was able to feed them on just such a little thing. Uh, he even raised, raised a dead girl. Right? So he's been doing crazy stuff. But the, the crazy thing about all of these crazy things is that they were kind of expected. They were kind of expected uh, as what would happen when God came to make the world right again. Okay, so uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, but here, here's the way it works. Like, we broke the world. And by broke the world, I don't mean in like a global warming type of way. I mean like we broke the world. Like everything was made to fit together perfectly in these unbroken relationships that the Bible calls shalom. It calls peace. That we, were, we existed in an unbroken relationship with God and everything kind of lined up underneath that. There was no conflict in the world. There was no uh, strife. It was, it was everything lining up as it was meant to. But all of these kind of disjointed because we betrayed God. We broke relationship with him, and when you break relationship with the main one, all of the rest kind of fall apart. We turned away from him. We, we betrayed him, like I said. We wanted independence. We were made for a dependent relationship with him, but we wanted independence because of fear and because of pride. Right? Our pride says, I can be independent from God. I can be like him, and our fear says, I must be. I can't trust him. Right? Maybe you wrestle with that even today. I bet you do. You may not even realize it, but you do, right? I can and I must. And that broken relationship broke the rest. It brought guilt before God into the world. It changed our very nature so that now we're stuck in that independence, that we don't have to be taught that. It's just the way we're born. Like, we're, we're there. Um, we were born that way. And it brought death and sickness in the world. So when Jesus shows up and all of a sudden death and sickness and famine and all these stuff start to reverse, that just makes sense. Because that's what people expected was going to happen when God showed up to make the world right again. All of these things start working backwards. But that raises questions. And that raises questions that that Jesus wants answered. Like, is this what y'all were expecting? 
is, is, am I the guy that you were hoping for? Has God actually come to make things right? So here in the middle of Matthew, Jesus forces the issue, okay? Look down at verses 13 and 14. Jesus asks, who do the people say that I am? It's an honest question. It's basically saying, what do, what do, you, what do the crowds think about me? You know, Jesus is, is a figure, right? He's a, he's a preacher. He's a figure. He's doing crazy stuff. And so he's probably not getting the, he's not getting the chatter the way the, the, the folks in the crowd are. So they, he asks them the question. And look at their answer. They say, well, some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay? Now, all of these are connected. Je- John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Uh, he did some crazy stuff, wore crazy clothes, camel hair, uh, ate bugs. Weird, but all predicted. So it, was, it, it wasn't that weird. But he lived in the desert. He did some crazy, crazy stuff. And, and he, what he's probably most famous for is he told the king of the area, like, y- your marriage ain't right, bro. You're not allowed to marry that woman because she was your brother's wife and you stole her from him and da-da-da-da-da. And that didn't work out well for him. It kind of... He lost a little weight above the neck, if you, if you understand my meaning. So um, he died. However, remember, and, and you're like, well, why would people think that he's John the Baptist? Well, remember, like, this isn't Instagram culture. <laughs> so, like, news doesn't travel super fast, and that could have been a rumor. No one really knows. And is this guy still around? And maybe this is the guy, because he, remember, Jesus started his ministry in the same region that John did, with a baptism. So maybe this is the guy. And it's not like anyone knew what John the Baptist looked like anyway. So it's not that crazy to think that the, this other dude who's doing wacky stuff is probably John the Baptist. Now, Elijah, Jeremiah, and one of the prophets all are kind of in the same category, right? Elijah was a, a big prophet in the Old Testament, so it was Jeremiah. And you see, the only category that people had for what Jesus was doing was prophet. Kind of. Because uh, the last book in the Old Testament... Okay, Malachi. If you were to go one book to the left of Matthew, uh, you'd get Malachi. And at the end of Malachi, it says that before God comes to, to rescue the world, there's going to be this person, this forerunner, who's going to be a lot like Elijah, who's going to come back in a prophetic way to, to kind of prepare the way. The forerunner, okay? And so when Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say I am? That's who they think Jesus is. He's the dude who comes before the dude. Right? He's the forerunner. He's the guy who comes before the guy. So those are the options. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Look at verses 15 and 16. He turns to them and says to them, But you, who do you what do you say about me? There are times in which we get a brief glimpse at this wonderful intimacy of Jesus. I don't know if you're anything like me. I think most of us are probably the same. We can look at Jesus as if he is so wholly other than us that we forget that there are moments like this in the Gospels where because we hear, we hear these passages read when we read them, we hear them with like some um, deep, resonant voice, which is very formal, but not very real. You know, And it's like, but you, who do you say that I am? What do you say about me? Right? But I want you to imagine something different. Jesus is just asked, what do the people say? And they're throwing out answers, and you can almost see Jesus going, no, no. And then he turns to his friends. And I mean real friends, not like Facebook friends. Like real friends. These are the people who actually spend time with him. Have spent a lot of time with him. Three years, in fact. And he says, what about y'all? What do you say? 
And Peter speaks up. It's always Peter. Which should give some, that should give us comfort if you're, if you're anything like me and you speak before you think. Which is Peter. He speaks a lot before he thinks. Not Peter Driver. He definitely doesn't do that. But, but Peter, the apostle, speaks before he thinks. Uh, that should give us comfort. Peter speaks up. He says, you're the Christ, man. You're the son of the living God. Okay? So let me break this down. This is, this is easily the most important thing that Peter has ever said and ever will say. Right? This is the most important thing. But we miss what it means. Okay? The word Christ means anointed. In the Old Testament, it would have meant king. So he's saying, Jesus, you're the king. You're the king. You're not the forerunner. You're the king. Because you see, the Old Testament had promised that though we broke the world, God was going to come to fix it. And that promise develops over time. First, it's going to be through Abraham's family, right? This dude named Abraham and his family. And then it gets narrower, and it's going to be of David's family, who's part of Abraham's family. It's going to get even narrower, and then it narrows down even further than that. Be one representative, one ruler from David's line who will be the answer to our sin. This particular representative who would strangely be both human but also share God's throne. And Peter gets that that person is Jesus. He gets it. Because you see, Jesus is God's answer for our sin. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to fix things. Not the rules he brings or the life that he lived for us to imitate. Him. If we were anything but him, it couldn't deal with our problem. Okay? Think with me. I just mentioned a few minutes ago that our problem is that we are now independent of God. That we were made for dependence on him, but now we're independent. And some of y'all in this room, your independence looks really good and clean. And I don't just mean on Sunday morning. Like, you clean up well, all y'all clean up well. But I mean, like, throughout your life, everything looks good and clean. You live morally. You live responsibly. You got money in your 401k. All this stuff. And you're like, everything's great. And you've done it apart from dependence on God. On God. God says, you live distant from me, whether it looks really clean or it looks like a train wreck. It's sin. And so if Jesus just came to give us rules to follow ourselves, or just came to give us a life to imitate ourselves, we would still be doing it ourselves. And so it would still be the same problem, right? It would actually make the problem worse. Because then we would be blind that we had a problem in the first place. The answer is Jesus, and and that's why Jesus had to be God. Not only so that he wouldn't be stuck in sin like we are, but so that when we place our faith in him, we're returning dependence on God instead of on ourselves. And so Peter says, you're the one. You're the one we've been waiting for, the one who's going to make the world right. It's you, Jesus. In other words, Jesus isn't just an option. He's it. He's the only way. And now things get really interesting, okay? Let's look at the question of purpose, uh, specifically with this acknowledged answer. If you've been in the church a while, you know that these verses I read, unfortunately, have been so full of debate on the wrong point, (laughs) right? So, like, uh, you know that verse 17, when when, um, Jesus says, you're Peter on this rock, I'm going to build my church, that has become, like, the dividing line verse for Protestants and Catholics, Right, because the Roman Catholics use that verse to to kind of justify the position of Pope, and and Protestants are like no, and so we just yell at each other. We do that. We fight a lot, um, and and so that's that's a shame because we miss the whole point over arguing whether Peter is the rock or his confession is the rock upon which Jesus builds the church. Right? We we've I'm not saying it's a waste of time. I'm just saying we miss 
the kind of the greater point. Okay, but look at verse seventeen real quick because Jesus Jesus says to Peter, He says, "Sorry, Peter, you got it got it wrong. I'm just a teacher." Now he doesn't say that, does he? That's what we expect him to say, isn't it? He just said, "You're the Christ. You are the Son of the Living God," and we expect Jesus to go, "Ah." No, 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 not, not even close. I mean, I got some good things to say, but that's, whoa, no. That, but, but he doesn't correct Peter. He congratulates him. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, which is, by the way, that's his name, okay? It's Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Simon was his name. Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but instead my Father in heaven. Now, here are a couple things I want to say about this. Peter has literally just said the most important confession imaginable. Because everybody else, all the crowds that have been walking around, listening to Jesus, seeing him do crazy stuff like heal people and bring back girls from the dead and feed 5,000 people, they all got it wrong. Did you notice that? Who do the people say that I am? I don't know. Elijah? John the Baptist? John the Baptist? Dude doesn't have a head. How am I John the Baptist? You know, maybe one of the prophets? No. No, they, they all got it wrong. And when Jesus says, what about y'all? Peter gets it right. So the masses are wrong about Jesus, but Peter got it right. And Jesus says, Peter, you didn't get this because of you. You didn't get it because of you. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. That means you didn't get it from some dude out there. And you didn't get it from some dude in here. You know, Peter's flesh and blood too, right? Peter's flesh and blood. So, so it didn't come from out there. It didn't come from in here. Instead, it came from the Father. Not Peter's intellect. Not Peter's ability. Not Peter's influences. It came from the Father. Okay? Second thing is that word revealed, which unfortunately gets, gets uh, missed in the English. We, we hear revealed and we think thought up. Uh, the word, that word revealed in the original, in the, in the Greek, is a, apocalypto from which we get the word apocalypse. Um, but apocalypse doesn't mean uh, end of the world. <laughs> doesn't mean big battle. Um, and it certainly doesn't kind of bring light or, or kind of highlight some kind of instance in which there's a giant asteroid heading to the earth and Bruce Willis has to go up there and drill down and, and blow it up. Like and nothing, apocalypse or Armageddon, any of that stuff has nothing to do with these things. Apocalypse means to have something revealed that was hidden. And specifically in the New Testament, it means God is revealing something. You never have something revealed in that apocalypse-type revelation that comes from other people. It always comes from God. God is doing the revealing. Now, here's why this matters. Peter gets what he gets about Jesus. Not because he figured it out. Flesh and blood didn't, didn't reveal it to him nor because he was more willing to figure it out than other people. That still would have been flesh and blood. Peter gets what he gets because God revealed it to him. God is the mover in in the life of the individual. He is not waiting for us to get it from amongst all the evidence. Remember, we are to be dependent even for that. He moves in us. See, if you're here this morning, and and you're still not really sure what you think about Jesus, but you're warming up to him, God is at work. God is at work. It's what he does. 
Now it gets really interesting. Look at verse 18. Peter says, you are Peter, which he changed his name. That's a big deal, but we don't have time to get into it. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, like I said, uh, normally it's the first part of that verse that, that gets all the attention. I want to look at the second, okay? So we're going to focus on the second. If you have a question about the first, you come talk to me. I can give you all the history of how we've argued about that for the last 500 years, Okay? But right now, we're going to talk about the second. Jesus says, I will build my church. This is the first time in the entire Gospel of Matthew Jesus uses the word church. He hadn't used it up to this point. He's going to use it again. He's going to use it just a couple chapters when he's in Matthew 18. But here he's talking about building his church. It is, it is a word. I know if you've, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard all this called out ones and all this stuff. Here's what it means, Okay. The word that he uses is a word that meant the assembly. And it's the assembly. It was the same way of talking about God's people in the Old Testament as they gathered together to worship. Okay? That was his assembly, his, his, his group. Yes, called out of the world and all that other stuff. Okay? We've translated it church. That's fine. But the big deal here is that Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus is going to build the church. And so, in other words, God is the one who works in the lives of individuals. We just saw that. Peter, you got this because the Father has worked in your life. And now, Jesus is saying, not only are you gonna, is God working in the lives of individuals, but I'm going to be the one that builds them together into a church. See a theme? There is a mission. It's what we've been talking about so far this summer. But it seems, in both cases, God is the primary actor in the mission, doesn't it? But he goes on. I'm going to build my church in the gates of hell or of Hades, depending on your translation, will not overcome it. Okay? Two things about this. First, the notion of gates. I don't know why it is, but for most of us, my guess is we see this particular phrase as meaning that um, hell will never overcome the church. Right? Maybe if you've been a Christian a while, you can nod your head like that's... That's the way we've seen this. The gates of hell are not going to overcome. The church. I'm going to build my church and it will never be overcome. Is that what he says? It's not what he says. Right? For some reason, we see this as a defensive metaphor. Now, some of you know that I'm a Tolkien nerd. And by Tolkien nerd, I mean really nerd. Like, I'm in like 15th reading of the Silmarillion. Right now. Um, so, it's, if you don't even know what that means, just take, take my word for it. I'm a geek, okay? Uh, but here's what, I, when I was young, I was really into fantasy stuff, knights and castles and all this stuff, really big into it. Here's what I know. Gates don't attack people, right? Gates don't attack. Gates don't assault. Gates don't try and take anything over. Gates keep other people out. That's what gates do. That's their function, Gates aren't the things that assault. Gates get assaulted. Gates get stormed. Gates get broken down. When Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it, will not overcome it, this is not a defensive metaphor. It is offensive. It is offensive. To overcome, that word to overcome in in the original, again, means to overpower. It's the same word for strength. What Jesus is saying is that the gates of hell will not withstand the church, not vice versa. 
The gates of hell will not withstand the church. In other words, the church is going to advance and nothing will stop it. And you have to understand, for those who who have kind of grown up in the worldview that the last great enemy is death. And what Jesus is saying is not even death is going to stop me. This would have been powerful. Now, some of you some of you are hearing this and it doesn't quite square with what you see, right? I mean, you did come to Stanton to church, right? And, which means that you came into this gym, you probably passed by like half a dozen steeples, and many of which are empty right now. So how does that work? Okay, well, let me be clear. There are two different ways of talking about the church. One is with a big C and one is with a little C. Jesus' promise for his church to advance is the big C. What you're sitting in right now, what we are a part of here, is, is the little C. Now, it's, it also takes part in the big C, but we're the little C. Here's what I mean by that. One day, hopefully not for a long time, but one day, Holy Cross will close its doors for the last time. It's just going to happen, guys. If you go back and you read um, the, John's Revelation, the Apocalypse, right? You read it, and he talks to a lot of churches. You know how many of those still exist today? Zero. Zero. Local churches have life cycles. Particular churches have a lifespan, which is why church planting, why multiplying congregations is never finished. It's never finished. But now, the question, when Jesus says that the gates of hell are not going to withstand the church, the question is, how is this possible, right? Again, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. If Jesus is promising this, think with me for a second, okay? If Jesus is promising, I'm going to build my church, it will never stop. That's a promise. That's a promise. That's not a potentiality. That's a promise. And if Jesus is making this promise, it's because he can deliver on it. And here's why. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not just make salvation possible. He actually saved people. He saved people. And that is why he can say with assurance that his church will advance. And that certainty that Jesus is speaking of is born out of the reality that God is the Lord. He is the Lord and he's Lord over salvation. He is sovereign. Just like God revealing saving knowledge of Jesus to Peter, he's still doing that. This is why the church is advancing through the victory of her king. We go forward because of what Jesus already did, not trying to bring to bear what he did. Do you see the difference? It's as, if, it's as if it's all been laid out, and as we move forward, it simply is coming into being. It's, it's coming to... Tell me, we don't have to try and, well, how do, I, how do I get the gospel to apply to this situation? We move into it, and the Lord is working and brings it to be. Jesus can make this promise because he actually saved people. Now, let's deal with some questions of our own, shall we? Because the first and most important one is the one that Peter answered, and it's the one that some of us in this room haven't really wrestled with very much. But it's also the most important question that you're ever going to have to answer. And it's about Jesus. Because listen, even if you've been going to church your whole life, you got, you got all the gold stars in your Sunday school chart. 
right? You've got the, the perfect attendance for this, and you've gotten all your memory verses down, or, or maybe, maybe your family has a stained glass window named after them in some church. Can I tell you something? Like, you still have got to wrestle with what to do with Jesus. What we do with Jesus is the most important question we will ever answer, because Christianity rises or falls on Jesus. It's why, it's why Jesus said to Peter, you're blessed, bro. Like, you got it. Because if Peter, of all people who had been following him since the beginning, didn't get it right, he'd be like, man, no hope here. Because you're just going to try and go do what I do, and it's not going to work for you. You need me. So, as we wrestle with what to do with Jesus, let me give you a first, let me give you some popular options, right? The first thing to do with Jesus that our culture loves to say is that this, this story of Jesus is a nice story, like other nice stories, like other legends, right? It's just a nice legend. I mean, everybody knows no one rises from the dead, right? Of course, ancient people, they were easily fooled, but, but us modern, sophisticated, brilliant people, unlike those ancient, foolish people, we get it, right? Well, here's the problem. The problem is that The Gospels never present the story this way. The Gospels bear throughout them the marks of eyewitnesses. Eyewitness testimony has very clear things associated with it. Random names, random events. In the Gospel of Mark, they talk about Jesus being arrested. And in the middle of his arrest story, the story of his arrest, Mark gives us this little detail. And this dude, he tried to run away and someone grabbed his clothes and he just ran off naked. Like, that's the middle of the story. You're like, what does that have to do with anything? And you're like, I know, right? Think of a story that you told about something that you witnessed. It probably has little details. Maybe no one ran off naked. But the point is, like, it probably has little details like that. We have eyewitness details throughout these stories. So they bear eyewitness testimony, and all the beliefs of Christianity are grounded on events. Now, don't disregard this, because unlike other religions, Christianity is based on public truth. It's based on events. It's based on witnesses. It's based on testimony. Things that happened, not teachings to follow. Okay? And there is more documented evidence. This is not just pastor talk. This is historical fact. There is more documented evidence that Jesus lived, died, and rose again than that Caesar fought the Gallic War. But ain't none of us in our, in our uh, ancient history class, whether I was in college or high school, were ever taught to ever doubt the possibility that Caesar fought the Gallic War, were we? So that's one, that, that it's, it's just a nice story. A second is the notion that Jesus as the Christ, that, that he, he was the... He was the Christ and rose again, that that developed over time. Well, again, the problem with this is the evidence. Because, you see, as early as 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have the Apostle Paul writing about Jesus being called the Christ and rising again. And shortly thereafter, you have the Gospels, which means that all of these statements that were made into the world were made when people who could have easily disputed them were still alive. We're not talking hundreds of years later. We're talking about the people who were still there would have gone, no, 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 no. Jesus never said that. Jesus never did that. I know where Jesus is buried. They never said that. The Gospels came along about 10 years after Paul had already started writing. People would have been alive to debunk all these stories. We can claim, and I know this is popular, especially in the world of Dan Brown uh, and the Da Vinci Code, we can claim a conspiracy theory, but we literally have no evidence for one. So again, 
You want to just believe that? That's, that's fine. A third is that the, the disciples lied. They made up this big lie, and they did it to gain power, which is one of the funniest ones to me, because uh, I think what that does is it's reading the medieval European church into the first century as if being a, a, an apostle, being a pastor, being a Christian in the first century was, like, great for you. Except that Paul, who's the most prolific of these people who went about the ancient world, was beaten, flogged, uh, eventually beheaded, uh, and he did all of this for a lie. That doesn't make a ton of sense. As a matter of fact, all of the apostles, all of Jesus' original disciples, except for one, were killed. They lost their lives, they lost their reputations, their property, all of this stuff for a lie. And also, and this is huge, for a lie to work, for a lie to work, it has to be grounded in expectation, right? If you're being lied to, and you did, like, if something is just crazy, you go, that ain't right. Come on, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, if, one, if you got young kids, and one of your kids comes to you and says, Dad, I was able to fly from the, the tree all the way onto our porch, you go, no, come on, man. Because you, that was totally not expected. It's not going to happen. Jews did not expect their Messiah to die and rise again. They didn't expect it. That lie would not have worked on them. And Romans, Romans certainly wouldn't have gotten it. I want you to imagine something for, for a minute. Paul walks into Rome, and he goes up to Rome. Rome. And the city of Rome already had a king of the world, by the way. His name was Caesar. And he walks into Rome, and he says, I've got great news. There is a new king of the world. And they went, really? Who is it? He's a crucified Jew! They would have been like, all right, whatever. Yeah, good. Uh, that, it's not going to work. It's crazy. That thought that this, is, that this has something to do with a lie to gain power just does not account for the evidence. The last idea, and there are others, but these are the main ones, right? It was that Jesus was just flat out crazy. That he actually did say these things, but he was nutty. Here's what I would say to that. Generally, you can have someone who claims to be God, and you can have someone who changes the world. You don't have the two together, right? David Koresh claimed to be God, changed nothing, right? We have those people. You could probably visit some today if you really wanted to. Uh, but they don't change the world. And, and so, read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Look at the history of the world for the last 2,000 years and tell me something. What is more far-fetched than a crazy dude? I mean, on the, on the level, C.S. Lewis said it, that it's on the level of like saying that he's like a poached egg. Like showing up and saying, I'm a poached egg. Like that's the level of crazy that we're talking about. A dude who's that crazy literally change the world, or that he is who he says he is? What's, what's harder to believe? What you, have, what you say about Jesus is the most important thing you will ever say. And so just as he asked the disciples, he's asking us, who do you say that I am? Okay? Lastly, storming the castle. Like I said, um, this language that, that Jesus brings out is offensive imagery. Jesus' church advances, it impacts, it multiplies, right? But how? Well, we see it above. It happens as people confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. 
It happens as people embrace the gospel. Some of you are here in this room because someone else in this room first invited you to hear the gospel and it changed your life. And you're here now. And the gospel has changed your life. And now you're thinking about those that you can invite to hear the gospel. This is why we are having that, that day that Jason Bailey talked about as he was praying, this, this friendship day that's for our kids. Instead of doing a vacation in Bible school, we're particularly kind of having a, a day where the kids can invite their friends to come, and it's very strategic of when we're doing it so that they can come and hear the gospel. They're friends and neighbors because adults aren't the only people on Jesus' mission, but kids as well. Uh, and so, like, if you've got... If you've got kids and they've got friends that don't know that that aren't Christians, like guess what? Like it's time to start praying and, and thinking about those kids and coming to be a part of that mission. It's also why we have twice a year these things we call Friendship Sundays, where we intentionally invite our friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus to church. The church advances as more and more people encounter Jesus and come to know Him. It's also why we're plant, we're planting this new congregation in Fishersville. Right? That's the whole video that we couldn't hear because we we'd never seen a video before anyone got up to talk before, and we're like, what is that about? But that's what that is. That's why we're doing this, to see the church advance. So l- listen to me. If you're part of Holy Cross, listen close. You're on mission. You are on mission. If you're a member of this church especially, you've joined us on mission. You've probably heard the elders talk about that when, we, when, when uh, you did your interview with us. And you are on mission whether you are going to be part of that congregation in Fishersville or not. We are all in this together. Some of us will be doing it here in Midtown and Stanton and some of us in Fishersville. But but just as much as we need goers and senders, you realize we're all goers. And we're all senders. Because we're all on mission. And here's the great part. We don't accomplish it. That's why we can risk big things. That's why we can, we can do stuff that seems silly. That's why you can be a part of a small church that's got like, you know, there's what, like 140, 145 people in this room, maybe 150, you count the kids in the, in the and we can go, but we're going to start a new congregation? Like that's nutty, that's crazy. And we go, yeah, but we don't have to accomplish it. We just got to go. Jesus is the one that accomplishes it. We can attempt great things, not because we believe in our great abilities, because we don't have them. If you're here at this church thinking that, that, this church is just filled with great abilities. You are wrong. Anything that we see is because of our king. We attempt great things because of our king. Because he will build his church. And that gives us freedom. You can share the gospel with friends without pressure because you know it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with how eloquent you are or, or how you stumble over your words. Because flesh and blood does not reveal it, but the Father who's in heaven. You can be a part of a crazy small church planning a new congregation because it isn't up to us. It's up to Jesus. Because the church advances through the victory of her king. Would you pray with me? Lord, there is something that pushes against us believing that your church is meant to advance. There's, there's something, in our, I think, in our American Christian heritage that wants us to believe that we are this defensive structure, this bulwark against the rising tides of culture and paganism. But Lord, your, your word tells us 
that you are a light to the nations, that you have made your Messiah a light to the nations, that you have made your Messiah's church a light for the nations, that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not withstand it. And so, Lord, as we try and come to grips not only with the fact that that is true, but with the fact that we are part of it because of you and not because of us, would you let that kind of grace propel us out? Lord, some of us in this room, whether we've been in church a million years or we, we've, we've never, this is the first time we've darkened the door of a church, we have never answered the question of Jesus, who do you say that I am? I pray, Lord, that today, Father in heaven, that you would reveal it to them and not flesh and blood so that you might receive all the glory because you are worthy of it because you revealed yourself to me and to many in this room. So we ask you to continue to do that, to, that, to enca- that people would encounter you and come to know you and then go out to show you in this city. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.